Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 29, the Always Gonna Show Up edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's show, the declining reputation of filmmakers like Wachowskis and Michael Mann has us thinking about directors whose work we still anticipate eagerly, even when they've lost much of their old magic. Then we reflect on Philip Seymour Hoffman's legacy a year after his death and some of the less heralded performances that made a deep impression on us. The game this week is Double Vision, in which I ask contestants to distinguish between two subterranean monster movies from 1997, and finally we wrap it up as always with our quickfire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Today sees the delayed release of Jupiter Ascending, the latest film from the Wachowskis. As of this recording, no one here has seen it yet. Perhaps it's a gonzo masterpiece, or perhaps it's another fiasco online with Cloud Atlas and Speed Racer. It's been over 15 years since The Matrix, and nothing the Wachowskis have released since has gotten much critical acclaim. But they have their ardent defenders, and plenty of people who get excited about whatever they decide to do. Ditto Michael Mann's Black Hat, which got the worst reviews in box office of his career, but which a self-selected few argue is the first great movie of 2015. Jupiter Ascending may not be The Matrix, and Black Hat may not be Heat, but we're all guilty of clinging to filmmakers we love, even as support for their work has fallen away. Here to talk to me about this phenomenon and share some of their own fading favorites are... Tasha Robinson. And... Keith Phipps. Tasha, let's start with you. Uh, what's behind this phenomenon? I mean, do, do, do you feel you have to connect with a director at a certain point in your life in order to cling to them so fervently? Um, not necessarily at a certain point in your life, but possibly uh, at a certain point in both their careers and in your filmmaking uh, experience, which, you know, some some of us, I'm looking at you, Scott Tobias, um, came to good films earlier than others of us. Mm-hmm. At whatever point in your life you first encounter something that just, you know, blows your mind, that, that blows the lid off your brain, you probably feel an attachment to the person that created that, the person that brought it to you. And I've talked to a lot of people about this phenomenon, and there's always, you, you see a sort of sheepish look come over their face as they say, you know, well, I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to let go of so-and-so, because he directed this one film that I first encountered when I was fill-in-the-blank, 13, 16, in college, whatever. And and it amazed me. So I, I think people keep coming back to filmmakers looking for that experience again, hoping that somehow they're going to be who they were when they were 13 or 16 or, or in college or whoever, and that the filmmaker is going to be who that person was however long ago, and that you can make that connection again. And that's, I mean, it's kind of a specious thing. You're never going to be that person. The filmmaker is never going to be that person. But there's still always the hope, and it's not necessarily completely a logical hope, because that person the filmmaker is still the person that brought you that film no matter how they've matured or how much their tastes have changed or how much the industry has changed it's still coming from the same sensibility so i think there's just always that hope that that, you know somewhere along the line they're going to they have that potential in them and they're going to realize it in a way that will make something that's amazing to you in the same way it was at some point in the past yeah i mean i i think i think you know, maybe we're getting off the wrong foot by phrasing this as being guilty of because I, I I like to be optimistic that that perhaps people can turn it around and mm-hmm. and, and you know I, my my kind of go to example is 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 Ridley Scott who, um you know whose who's first three features right off the bat are the Duelist, Alien, and Blade Runner and and, and all amazing movies, um, maybe even one each each one more amazing than the last but uh he's he's still a really commanding director with a distinct style. Um, and, and who can orchestrate 
big scale movies in a way that, that few can, but sometimes that means uh, Exodus, uh, uh, God, <laughs> or, God's a, Kings, or, or uh, a good year, or, or uh, right, right, exactly. But uh, but sometimes it means The Counselor, which I know is not. A mo- I know we're on the minority, Scott. You and I both like that movie quite mm-hmm. a bit, but it certainly uh, has a, a, a distinct Ridley Scott feel, and it's not necessarily not a movie uh, anyone else would have made. But or Black uh, Hawk Down didn't right. that come after like a long period oh, sure. of just nothing really particularly special from? Well, I mean, yeah, Gladiator. I mean, you know, <laughs> I hated Gladiator. Well, I, like, so. I, I like Gladiator. I'm not sure it's best picture, but uh, you deserve to be best picture that year. But but still, it, I like it. But Matchstick Man after that, another little movie I really like of his. But you know, between that, you get Kingdom of Heaven and American Gangster and Body of Lies, which is one of those movies I know I've seen. I could, could tell you nothing about. Yeah, well, that title, that title, just like body of whatever you put body in the title, it's a yeah. thriller. It's like you're not going to remember what that is. I, I kind of had the same experience with Kingdom of Heaven. I really enjoyed it while I was watching it, and I think I'd forgotten it two minutes later. Yeah. Well, I also feel though with in Ridley Scott's case that it was a, a case. It was a, a career that we thought we thought we were getting one thing, and then it became something else. And that and that I think maybe there was the expectation that he was going to be our guy for smart science fiction heading into, you know, the through the eighties and beyond. And and, you know, he just kind of proved to be somebody who with who's more versatile and more interested in a lot interested in a lot of different kinds of making a lot of different kinds of movies. Yeah. And even with something like Prometheus, which is sort of his return to science fiction, I I, uh, I really kind of hate that movie, but it also is, you know, I, the script is Terrible. I mean, we yeah. don't need to get into that now. But but the look and feel of it is just really amazing. You know, it, it's it's a Ridley Scott film. So that's that's kind of why I, I stick stick by him. Uh, what's, I think that so is what's, a, what's, an important distinction, yeah. though, that sometimes we we stick with somebody because we see something of theirs early on, and we we keep hoping that the their direction their career direction will go in the direction we were hoping as of that film. Like I, I think that that's not a, a terribly uncommon thing. And you know he he's made thirty seven films, and none of them have been the film that I wanted after this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's when I when I said it also depends on where you come to a filmmaker in their careers. That's part of what I was talking about. I think I, I think if you if you come across Ridley Scott really early in his career and you think oh this is maybe this is where he's going or maybe all his films will be like this you're gonna have a different relationship to him than if the first Ridley Scott movie you see is Kingdom of Heaven and then you look back at his career and see oh he's made a lot of movies and a lot of them have not had any kind of impact if the first Ridley Scott movie you see is Blade Runner you're gonna have a different relationship with him there's another thing too about some of these uh directors as well i mean michael mann is an example black hat is is an example for me of uh of you know even when they're sort of fading you can at least anticipate being in you know their world right and their world is kind of an appealing place just to reside i mean black hat uh, you know black hat the script and the cast black hat were taken on by just a kind of a kind of a uh, ordinary director that film would have gotten like one star for me. Um, but I gave it three because, uh, because you know, man himself, his, his interests, um, what, the things that could c- compel him and his ability to create atmosphere, you know, to work in certain, you know, cinematic archetypes, all of these man themes, they, they're all present. And so, and so you're kind of willing to um, not overlook, but, but accept that, 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 
this sort of certain diminishing aspects uh, of his work and kind of appreciate, you know, what does work. I mean, I think another one, and I think I'll cue you on this, uh, is uh, Terry Gilliam, right? Mm-hmm. I will I will never not see a Terry Gilliam movie, even though most of his films have disappointed me for not being Brazil. I think for me, like looking kind of down the list of filmmakers that I, I assembled, you, you said you were going to ask us, you know, what kind of directors do we have this relationship with? Mm-hmm. Once I looked at them on, on paper, I basically realized that they all come down to what Keith was saying about kind of a commanding style. Uh, they all have like an idiosyncratic style. And I know when I go see a movie by Terry Gilliam or Jean-Pierre Jeunet or a Tarsim or uh, even like Christopher Nolan. There have been a lot of Christopher Nolan films that I haven't enjoyed very much, Hmm. but I have never not been impressed by the filmmaking and the chances of me not going to see a Chris Nolan film are pretty much nil. There's always just this feeling that no matter what film they choose to make and what I may feel about like the content the story, how it unfolds, even how the film is made, I know I'm going to see something specific. I'm not going to see something generic or boring, something that I would have gotten out of another filmmaker. I mean, you said uh, you kind of referenced the Wachowskis as uh, having produced a bunch of fiascos. Those fiascos are all fascinating. Yeah, they are. They are, definitely. Uh, Yeah, I'm a Cloud Atlas fan, and I kind of object to using the word fading in in terms of this discussion because it it makes it sound like there's always an inextricable decline, and I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Well, I guess maybe the maybe I'll, I'll go to the example, the classic example uh, of a filmmaker who who is uh, fading, and that that's John Carpenter. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Car- Carpenter is that that's a, if you're talking about that kind of trajectory, somebody who put out a put out a string of really great movies and then reached a certain point and then just started this this sort of decline. I mean, I think that's the that to me that's the that's the case, and I think that's the case that you know Quentin Tarantino has talked about how he's going to retire after what ten films or something like that. But sure. the the idea being he doesn't want his career to go on that arc. He doesn't want to be making movies past the point where he th- he thinks he's going to be any good at it. Yeah, or, but Quentin Tarantino says a lot of stuff that he doesn't follow. True, but I think on. that's. But I feel like that is the you know. And when he, I remember an interview he did with Charlie Rose where he was. You know, suggest pretty much suggesting the same thing about. I think Carpenter was the was the model he had had in mind. And he always brings up Billy Wilder's later films as examples of that mm. too. Yeah, that he's like I think he said something like, if, "If a kid goes and pulls one of the movies off the shelf, I don't want it to be my buddy, buddy or something." You know. Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you know, I mean, but but that that Carpenter, I'm certainly again, you know, I'm in line for whatever he's got going on too. Yeah. I mean, if it's that well, he doesn't. I mean, part of why he's fading is he made like what film one film in the last fifteen years and it wasn't very good you know so yeah but I mean even then I mean you could you could start with you know they they live I think is his last you know great movie well we're talking about this I, li- I like in the mouth of madness an awful lot yeah I think it's probably worth revisiting but yeah uh, yeah yeah but but uh, no I, I was there for those later ones too like the your ghosts of Mars and your uh, yeah. uh, village of the, children of the Dam village, village of, of village because of, of the remake yeah, yeah. right no, it's not village of the Dam was the same year as in the mouth of madness actually yeah but um but yeah I don't know uh, so okay not fading we, we cannot say fading but but what you know something happens but I, I think there were you know I mean certain certainly a lot of these filmmakers have lost some of at least the, the critical respect that they had before at least or the com- certainly the commercial success that they that they enjoyed in the past I mean uh, you know I mean it was uh, you know Brian De Palma is another example of a filmmaker whose work I still really like but uh, but uh, you know his f- fate has changed I mean now his last film was released you know, on VOD before it was released in theaters. I mean, this was a guy who, who did the Untouchables and Scarface and, and, and all of the, you know, Mission Impossible and these really big movies. And this, you know, things of, you know, I think, I think all that's left for him are, 
you know, auteurists and, you know, the French. <laughs> but I, but I, I would say this, though. I mean, perhaps, um, I mean, maybe maybe the last one didn't turn out that well, but I think in, in the current movie-going climate, I think it makes sense for someone like Brian De Palma to do uh, European funding, do, go to VOD, sure. take a smaller budget, and make the film he wants to make. I mean, I mean, there's, there is, you know, there's fewer, there's less and less room for those kinds of sensibilities in Hollywood films. Yeah. And, and uh, the people who are getting to make, you know, the films they want to make as, as auteurs or, or your Paul Thomas Anderson's and the few people that, that are really big heavy hitters right now, not, not your Brian De Palma's from, you know, who, whose commercial heyday was some time ago. So I, I mean, even if passion didn't work out that well, I don't think that's a bad model. And I don't, no. I wouldn't write him out because of that, you know, that he whiffed at that. I wasn't even a whiff. I didn't think it was, he it was would. more like, no, yeah. more like a, like a weak single. But I mean, it's, uh, but, yeah, but, but it's, it's kind of like, you could say, you could say it's an exercise in line with a lot of exercises he's done in the past, perhaps a little bit. I, what I'm saying is I don't think we should shame people for not necessarily turning out the big Hollywood movies and trying to make the sort of films they want to make in a smaller venue, and perhaps VOD is, is part of that in the future. In fact, can we shame people for turning out big Hollywood movies and that feel like they've kind of squandered their potential? Because I think one of the people who would have made this list for me, like even 10 years ago, was Tim Burton, who certainly mm. had that both the idiosyncratic, you know, you know you're seeing something unusual when you see his movies thing going for him. Um, and the sense of, you know, I when I first came to him when he was first making movies, he was making movies like nothing I'd ever seen before and they mm. amazed me. And I feel like he's one of the one of the ones, his, I won't say his career arc went in a different direction than I was expecting. It's almost like it went exactly in the direction we were expecting, but instead of an arc, it just kind of became a straight line. Mm -hmm. And he's just making the same movie over and over and over, right down to putting Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter in all of them. They all kind of look the same. They all feel the same. And he has enjoyed enormous commercial success, especially recently. Wasn't Alice in Wonderland like one of his big, biggest hits? It if was. Not it his was biggest hit, hit ever. Yeah. I, on the other hand, Big Eyes is, is, is a different sort of project for him. And but. I haven't seen that yet, and I'm curious about it, but I also just, I, at this point, I have the opposite of what we're talking about, that sort of sense of recoil of no matter what he does, I don't want to see it because I'm so sick of seeing the same Tim Burton movie over and over. And you're thinking he's been sort of part of the system now. He's not He's not an outsider I think that as much. everything unique and interesting about his filmmaking, he has commodified and commercialized into like a sort of a cookie cutter thing. But in his defense, he was always a big studio filmmaker. He was always sort of like the... the the mall-friendly face of uh, sort of a uh, goth and dark, dark uh, visions, you know. I mean, yeah, uh, but he used to be weirder. I mean, you look at Edward Scissorhands; that is, in a way, a very commodified version of goth and weirdness. But it's also a pretty strange movie. Yeah. And when he made it, it was a much more unique movie than now that he's made versions of that film over and over. I mean, my problem with Burton is, is Big Eyes Aside, he's just kind of like finding like sort of what kind of established properties have like some sort of dark undertones and how can I put my Tim Burton thing on it? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's, that to me is, is what's getting more tedious. Although I, I, I you know, surprised dark shadows was better than I thought there's it was there's going a, to there's be. A, there's kind of a point where, where uh, autourism becomes branding <laughs> that uh, yeah. at least with, with him, you know? Um, but, um, exactly. Well, to some degree, like, I mean, Tarsum blew my mind with the fall. I, it mm -hmm. remains one of my favorite movies of all time. Everything that he's done since has kind of been, kind of been a Tim Burton movie, kind of been a big, colorful, 
nothing that's visually spectacular but doesn't have a lot going on for it but I will keep coming back for his movies hoping that he will hit that point where his sensibility will escape out from under whatever commercial thing that he's doing because I know that sensibility is still there I'm still seeing it in his films I'm just not seeing it being like free to escape what do you what besides the cell the the cell and the The fall was before the fall um immortals and God, what was the oh, he most did, recent he did, one? He did the one of the two competing, uh, what are they, um, fairy tale movies. What, 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 mirror, what was, mirror. Mirror, Mirror. Mirror, Mirror, And then right. he's got one coming out in 2015, which I will be in line for, <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah, and I mean, in, when Losing, Losing My Religion 2 uh, <laughs> comes out, that song... It's gonna be an awesome video by Tarsum. Well, okay, so so let's let's uh, go go around one more time and name name another person, name another cling to favorite Keith Phipps. Uh, I mean, until recently, I would I, I find myself defending Clint Eastwood, and now suddenly Clint Eastwood is the biggest director in the world again for a movie I don't really care for all that much. But um, I mean. Yeah, this is where this is where the guilt comes in, I guess. But uh, I'll always watch a Woody Allen movie. Uh, there's a couple I've missed over the years, but um, you know uh, he gets harder and harder to defend as as the movies get less interesting, with occasional exception. And of course, harder and harder to defend as as uh, his off-screen scandal, alleged scandal, becomes a uh, uh, becomes a larger part of what uh, Woody Allen is and the public perception. But I still watch the movies. Um, Werner Herzog keeps making the same movie over and over conceptually, but he, he always finds a new angle on it. He always finds a new corner on it. And I'm always just going to find his, both his literal voice and his filmmaking voice fascinating. Um, Joss Whedon actually uh, represents for me something that we haven't really talked about, which is that feeling of kind of having a little bit of ownership of a a filmmaker. In his case, it's not so much that his films are, are exceptional, although they do all have kind of a voice to them is that I know so much about him. I've read so many interviews with him. I've followed along in his career arc. I've been there for every step of his career. I just feel like I have, like he's like an old buddy that, you know, doesn't send postcards anymore. Yeah. So there's a sort of a sense of relationship you get with a filmmaker that that you followed for years and years that I think I have with him. And, you know, I'm, I'm always going to show up for his movies as well, whether they're tiny little black and white Shakespeare experiments or, you know, <laughs> 50 billion dollar Avengers movies. All right. Uh, Keith and Tasha, uh, thank you very much. Sure. Thanks. Philip Seymour Hoffman died a year ago this week. As much as any one person can alter the filmmaking landscape, the absence of Hoffman, quite possibly the best actor of his generation, has been felt acutely. For last week's career view, our own Nathan Rabin watched all 50-plus films Hoffman appeared in. And now that we've seen the last films he made before he died, A Most Wanted Man and The Hunger Games Mockingjay, we thought it would be a good time to reflect on his legacy and perhaps some of the lesser-known roles that deserve a little attention. Joining me are... Nathan Rabin and Keith Phelps. Uh, Nathan, let's start with you. Uh, what what did you learn from this experiment? What did what did you learn about Philip Seymour Hoffman in working on that career view? You know, what what sorts of roles uh, tended to attract him? Well, um, I was kind of depressed uh, when I started uh, this career view, uh, and I think just working on this just sunk me into an even deeper depression because <laughs> uh, nobody made movies as heavy as uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, he has a few popcorny type movies on his resume. Uh, he appeared in. Um, Strangers with Candy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's really, really funny. And along came uh, Polly, mm-hmm. which uh, cannot be said of anybody 
else ever. Um, yeah. But for the most part, he chose roles that were really, really heavy. He really committed himself to a point where, you know, it, it seemed to, to, every performance seemed to be ripped out of his soul. Um, so, yeah, I think I came in with an enormous amount of respect for Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I think I came away from this process uh, depleted emotionally, um, but also a very satisfied. And in terms of the, the sort of roles that he was attracted to, he was very much a, a man of extremes. Uh, the two kind of extremes that he tended to play and tended to play brilliantly were these kind of world-beating men, these geniuses, I guess kind of... Uh, um, the L. Ron Hubbard figure in, in The Master would be a good example of that. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the MacArthur Grant uh, winner who stages the world's most uh, ambitious, surreal play in Synecdoche, New York, would be another example of that. And then on the other side, he played sort of these sort of sniveling, um, weak men who wanted to crawl out of their skin, who were so sad, who were so pathetic. I guess kind of Scotty and, and Boogie Nights uh, mm-hmm. would be a good example of that. Uh, the, the prank crawler and, and happiness oh, would be Another example of that. He very rarely played just normal guys. Uh, every once in a while he did, and that was kind of a refreshing thing. But he tended to challenge himself by playing people who were either, you know, uh, better than everybody else or, or, or seemed to be subhuman. Considerably worse. Uh, yeah. And, and what got me, uh, you know, about his career and thinking about it and reading your piece is is how convincing he was no matter what. Because I, I, I'd seen him in things before Boogie Nights, including Heart Eight, but Boogie Nights was the first film that really made a deep impression on me and i just thought this guy is that guy right i mean this is this is oh, totally this is uh, this is uh, you know is he is he even acting and, and then of course he was because you see you know he quickly became uh very heavily featured in films like the big lebowski and and happiness and and uh um you know happiness but maybe isn't in some ways a huge departure from from uh scotty and boogie nights it's another it's very much more uh, an internal quieter character but also another one of, of life's beaten down people but then you see him in things like even before the, the the master and almost famous as lester bangs he's just so commanding and so confident and that's you'd see that in a lot of roles too and it, it, he's remarkable in, in both modes and i think your, your piece also kind of tied together how how you know, personalities can have both those people in them, both both those sorts of type of people in them. And he was very good at, at varying between those extremes. Oh, totally. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, sort of uh, bravura. I think about him in uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, mm, yeah, where he's yeah. in it for about 15 minutes or so. Uh, he has one of the great entrances and one of the great exits, uh, yeah. probably of all time <laughs> in that. And I think he's introduced his first line is uh, he asks Dickie Greenleaf, played by Jude Law, don't you just want to fuck every woman you meet at least once? Uh, and that just kind of says everything about that character and the fact that the guy who played Scotty in Boogie Nights, what, two years earlier or a year earlier, yeah. could pull that off so convincingly. I mean, he really did play like the sum of humanity was uh, embodied by Philip Seymour Hoffman as an actor, which is you know why it's such a tremendous loss. When he died, it felt like we sort of lost this huge part of cinema past, um, but we also lost... Uh, you know, a huge part of cinema future. I think we're all mourning in sort of the decades of brilliant performances he would have given had he lived longer. It, I mean, it, it reminds you just how you can take someone for granted, you know? I mean, right. it's just like, oh, the master, uh, maybe this last 
truly great role, but it's like, you know, here's, here's Philip Seymour Hoffman delivering a performance for the ages as he does. You know, that's just, just that's something. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, he could be nominated for an Academy Award every single film he made, essentially. He was that good. One of the things that kind of strikes me too, looking at this filmography, you know, you talk about how he was attracted to sort of dark roles and dark films, but he's, he also is generally the funniest thing, the most kind of explosively funny person in anything that he turns in, he's in, and even, even dramas. I mean, Punch Drunk Love is not really, you know, a, a, a drama per se, but he's, he's, you know, he's very violent and very funny in that. Um, uh, he's, he's really funny in uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Right, um, right. You know, he's, uh, um, you know, a, a sort of the beaten down uh, Art Howe in, in Moneyball. That's a, that's a very funny performance. He can find uh, the laughs uh, when they're there. Um, and that, that was just another thing he could do. But, uh, but, but generally, he was, just, he was just one of those guys who, when he was cast in something, that was going to be the best performance. And that was like, he was like one of those actors that, that, uh, you know, that you look forward to, 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 to that you just, if, if a movie is going to have him in it, then, then you really look forward to that movie, which is not, you know, which is typically, at least for me, you know, something I think about in terms of d- directors, you know, I mean, fortunately also for Hoffman, he also tended to work, tend to work with a bunch of directors that I liked, but yeah, I mean, he basically worked with many of the greatest uh, directors of all time. And yeah. there was a reason why they were attracted to them. And there's, you know, you think of his collaborations with uh, PT Anderson uh, in particular, like dating back to the hard age. Mm-hmm. Where um, again, it's a tiny, tiny role. I mean, it might not even have any dialogue in the script. He brings such life and such color and such. And, and part of it was that he he could be a bit of a ham, especially you know you look at the early part of his career and he was lunging for the camera. He was you know uh, intent on making audiences uh, you know remember him and standing out. And he evolved into you know it's hard to believe that he died at the age of forty six because he was so lit in in all of his performances and he also seemed to have been playing a man in his 40s for about 20 years uh, before he died it seemed like he was never really young that's true i mean do, do, you, do you all remember when he first kind of made an impression on you when you when you went to, went to the movies not necessarily knowing who he was and then and then you saw a performance of his and it really kind of took you kind of shook you a bit I was Boogie Nights for me. It just, I mean, as I said before, but he's just so raw and open and vulnerable. And, and uh, um, you know, when, when, when that breakdown scene at, on New Year's Eve is just some, some of the hardest stuff to watch. And this is just someone putting everything out there. It was, uh, um, you know, that, that for me was like, you know, I'd, like I said, I'd seen him before, but that was sort of like, like, who is this guy moment for me? Right. But Boogie Nights for me, but also The Big Lebowski. Yeah. And, and one of the great things about him is that he was so great with other actors. And you could not think of two more uh, kind of antithetical styles of acting uh, than Philip Seymour Hoffman in um, The Big Lebowski, where he's playing just this very pompous, very fake, very kind of glad handling, uh, flunky, and then Jeff Bridges, who is the most natural actor in the world. And just the chemistry between them is just so brilliant and so funny. And it's only really, again, about five, ten minutes or so, but it's five, ten minutes that like will live uh, on forever as one of those great people pieces of film and and his filmography is just full of all i mean up until yeah i mean you know uh in, in the hunger game movies like yeah those are not you know the the most uh, important or greatest movies in the world but he really is invested in them he really adds a lot of depth a lot of character i mean he no matter what he did he invested all of himself in it even including stuff like mission impossible 3 where he's 
terrifying yeah. where he's like you he you see him at the front uh, front of the movie disappears for an hour you kind of lose track and then he is just such a such a such a force you know you really think he is going to kill ethan hunt <laughs> um, which which is the most remarkable thing you can say about you know a movie uh, which is franchise that's built around right. somebody who is literally invulnerable and accomplishes the impossible every time out yeah, I mean, I think I think for me that 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 sort of late '90s, early 2000s period where he just he was in, you know, Magnolia and the talent of Mr. Ripley and the Big Lebowski and Almost Famous and State in Maine and these sorts of things that it was just wow, it's one yeah, of the greatest it, runs of any actor. It was an incredible of all time. run. I mean, yeah. and he was still kind of new, but he he was he was great throughout his career. I mean, so so guys, what what is is there kind of like a lesser known or less heralded role of his that you'd uh, that you'd sort of single out? Uh, well, I would single out the movie uh, Owning Mahoney, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a Canadian drama from, I believe, about uh, 12 years ago or so. Um, and it's interesting because he kind of plays a combination of his two sort of specialties, one which is this kind of nowhere man, this kind of very boring, bland, middle management banker type who is also a genius and is brilliant enough to pull off the largest embezzling scheme in the history of Canada. Um, And it's a very, very measured performance. It's a very internal performance. It's very uh, understated for Philip Seymour Hoffman, Mm -hmm. but it's so powerful. And he has this final scene where he talks about, you know, what life is life without gambling um and it's just it, it's heartbreaking and it, it's utterly shattering and you can kind of understand why it hasn't uh, found you know the following that other other films did um but it is definitely one uh, that i think is one of his best films yeah, it's one of his gem. best performances keith what about you uh that's a great one and, and and i probably would have been my pick if you didn't pick it first so i'll, I'll go with the savages which was uh, oh, yeah. a 2007 drama with laura lenny directed by tamara davis who does not make enough movies uh hasn't made a film since then which is which is uh, unfortunate but uh it's he and, and laura lenny play brother and sister who are attending to uh, a dying father and it is uh uh, sort of unblinking about uh, about that uh, about that process and in the best way possible. Um, and uh, I, it's also uh, very, it's very dark and heavy, but also pretty funny too. Yeah, I mean, totally. it's, full, it's full of dark comedy. Yeah, it, it's it's a really good one. If you haven't seen The Savages or Owning Mahoney, I would say go watch those now. And I guess this isn't maybe one of his lesser known performances, but the but the, we haven't mentioned it yet. So so I think his Lester Bangs performance, oh my God, yeah, almost yeah. famous, is uh, something that is one of my uh, favorites of, of his. I mean, for one, I just I tend to quote it all the time. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. li- lines like uh, "these people are not your friends." I mean, that that's a perfect uh, statement for somebody in uh, in our in our business, certainly who right, kind of right. who kind of talks to uh, talk to very cele- celebrities and kind of know that they have their agenda, and he's. He's sort of that um, uh, that voice of conscious, I guess, to uh, to the to the lead right. character played by uh, Patrick. Fugit. And when he, when he's talking about uh, the whole concept of the uncool, yeah, and, you know, and how the the only true like important moments in life are when you're sharing something with somebody who is also uncool. Like again, that just resonates so strongly. It, and again, it's it's a performance that's probably about ten minutes long. Yeah. But it's one of the greatest performances of and all it's time. A, and it's a driving force in the, in, the, in the movie. I mean, ultimately, with the journey of the movie is this character getting finally getting to have you know, a, you know a real moment with this right. with this mu- musician and, and being able to kind of sit down on the recorder and actually really talk. Um, well, and also playing a genius. You know, playing the guy who's the best uh, at in the world at what he does, which is what you know Philip Seymour Hoffman was as an actor, and what his characters often were as well. Well, um, uh, Keith, uh, Nathan, uh, thanks very much. 
And now it's time for Double Vision, the game where I take two movies with a lot of things in common and ask my fellow dissolvers what detail comes from what movie. Today's version is inspired by one of my favorite Onion headlines. Area man can't remember whether he rented Mimic or The Relic. <laughs> the relevant quote from that, from that story, quote, It's the one where they're underground and everything's dripping and the thing, <laughs> the thing is trying to get them, Ollie said of the unspecifically recalled film. Quote, you know, the one with the tunnels. With the blonde, they're running with flashlights trying to get away with, from the huge monster. They're either under this museum or under New York. I'm not sure. So, guys... Mimic or The Relic? Oh, God. I've seen both of them, but it's been so long. Yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I've only seen one. Which one? I've seen Mimic. I have also seen Mimic. But not The Relic, huh? No, I have not seen The Relic. I should probably introduce who we're playing with. They're talking, but uh, we don't know who they are. Uh, So let's go around the room. Keith Phipps. Rachel Handler. Nathan Rabin. Okay. Uh, So here we go. Let's start with you, Keith. Yes. Tagline. They did the unthinkable. They brought it back. That is the relic. That is correct. Uh, all right, that's one. That's a point for Keith. Put that one on a T for you. All right, this one is also a tagline. This is for this is for Rachel. Okay, I've not seen either of these movies. No, I. I <laughs> some, I'm, so. some of America did see see them, but not a lot of them. Uh, quote: The next step in their evolution is our extinction. Um, you made it up. No, mimic. Oh. Mimic. You thought I made that one up? Nah. Oh well. Is that, is that an option that you made? Uh, yes. Something? Oh, okay. All right. Good. Yes, I made it up as an option. So, Yay. so uh, this one goes to you. Memorable quote: "Evolution has a way of keeping things alive." I'm going to say that that is probably the motion picture entitled "Mimic." Correct. Mimic is correct. So, uh, Nathan and Keith on the board. Back to Keith. Memorable quote: "Science has finally surpassed nature. We've created the ultimate killing machine." That's going to be the mimic. Made up. Ah, oh, that was wow. me. That was screenwriter Scott Tobias. Oh, <laughs> fake movie. Or, or do you mean that you're the ultimate killing machine? The ultimate <laughs> killing machine. Um, another memorable quote to you, Rachel. There's a half burnt joint on the floor. Seems our boy was having a little pot on the potty. <laughs> <laughs> the relic. The relic is correct. Wow. That that piece of dialogue is from the relic. I can't that, believe that Peter Hyde was I really wish, that I I really like wish that. the order had been different because that, that actually sounded like I made it up. But no, oh. that one actually is in the relic. Now I need to see the relic. No, I know. That's good stuff. Uh, okay, Nathan Raven. All right. Which film grossed more? The Relic, Mimic, or that other science fiction classic from 1997, Fools Rush In, with Matthew Perry and Salma Hayek? Hmm. Well, I know that the mimic was a box office failure for uh, director Guillermo del Toro, uh, and I think the same. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, and the relic didn't do so good for Peter Iams. Uh, and uh, what, didn't that? Uh, what about Fools Rush In? How did that Fools do? Fools Rush In that had that uh, James Fry, uh, d- d- Weisenheimer, uh, working behind it. You know, for some reason, I think that made like thirty million dollars. So I'm going to say that Fools Rush In. Uh, was the top grossing of those three motion pictures? No, the relic. The no, relic. Oh no! Yeah. How much did it make? I felt like forty million. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. that's yeah. good. Yeah, but, you know, that penalty a little, little below box office or the, the relic. I love that the name you cough up for the Matthew Perry Salma Hayek uh, uh, yeah. comedy is James Fry. It uh, is. <laughs> yeah, that was his finest um, work. So, so actually, he made up all the characters in it. Totally so fabricated. We're, we're, we're even. We're dead even. Everyone's at uh, one. But this is this is a chance for Keith to pull ahead. Quite a bit. This is a, a special two-point 
question because it's a little bit more difficult. Okay. All right, here we go. An entomologist, an anthropologist, and a geneticist walk into a bar. <laughs> which one is the character in the relic? Which one is the character in Mimic? And which one did I just make up? I think I got this, actually. Okay. Let me uh, walk me through it again. Okay, entomologist, anthropologist, anthropologist, excuse me, geneticist. All right. Um, I'm going to say the anthropologist. Oh, you say anthropologist? Anthro. Entomolo- yeah. ent- anthropologist. Anthropologist. Entomologist. But he said archaeologist. That no been, archaeologist. That would have been easy. No. That would have been the relic. No, no there's no archaeologist uh, in the, uh, the relic. No, it's all about archaeology. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's Susan. Scott, all right. did you see the relic? <laughs> no. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no. But but this is that's not... Uh, Our next game is called right. Has Scott Seen the Relic? <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. I got it. Um, entomologist is from... The mimic and the uh, geneticist is from the relic. No. Oh, okay. The anthropologist is the relic and geneticist I made up. Sure, is that an archaeologist? Nope. Nope. All right, moving on. Rachel, a gaming hat being a little bit uh, sticky here. Hmm. All right. Both movies feature feature up-and-coming blonde actresses in the lead role. Penelope Ann Miller in The Relic and Uma Thurman in Mimic. Which one had Jeremy Northam as the second lead? Up and coming, non-blonde Jeremy Northam. <laughs> um, which was the one with the Thurman again? Mimic. <laughs> that one. Yes, Mimic. <laughs> your instincts are amazing. You haven't seen any of these movies, but you're in the lead. He, he, he just, just sounds better wow. with Uma Thurman. I could just picture it. You sense a better pairing there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chemistry's there. T- Tom Sizemore would be the other one. <laughs> yeah. who, I'm sure, who I'm sure you can imagine has great chemistry with Penelope Ann Miller. <laughs> yeah. And there's a straining writer as well. <laughs> if, uh, history is any indication. All right, this is a tagline, Nathan. Are yes. you ready? All right. They're not staying down there anymore. That would be uh, the motion picture uh, mimic. No, that would be made up. That's from Chud, actually. No, <laughs> the movie Chud. Is it uh, Chud or is it Bud Chud to Bud the Chud? It, it, <laughs> I, I didn't go that deep I'm, right. in my research, unfortunately. Um, all right, we've got uh, somehow. How do we only have two more clues? That's kind of fucked up, isn't it? <laughs> I should I should have come up with a. Uh, hmm. well, well, considering that you haven't seen one of these movies, it's not that much of a oh, surprise. This is a nightmare. All right, Keith. Uh, oh, she says a freaking softball. Give me a break. Uh, which one takes place under the Field Museum in Chicago? Oh, that's the relic. Yeah, that was the that was oh, the man. gimme. That was the gimme. This actually, this one in terms of score, since we're going around a second one, this this would be Rachel for the win, correct? Because uh, because everyone's had an equal amount of time, and Nathan is Nathan is down here. No. Okay, so so Rachel, you could win this. You could win this, and I without me having to make up a th- another question. Uh-huh. Yes, right. Okay. It's uh, a lot of pressure. So, so here you go, Rachel, for the win. Uh, which one features a supporting performance by F. Murray Abraham? The Relic. No, the Mimic. <gasps> no. Oh, damn it. All right. So, uh, so Keith and Rachel are, are, are tied. Nathan, I'm afraid. Uh, actually, I have to get pick five. He can catch up, too. He can get a second one. Oh. All right, Nathan, your chance to, uh, to, to, for the three-way tie. Um, here's a memorable quote. Are you ready? Yes. If I weren't about to shit my pants right now, I'd be fucking fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> what, what film is that from, Nathan? I'm guessing that that is from the uh, motion picture mimic, which I think I've guessed every single time. You're, you're wrong. That's from Slither. No! That's from James Gunn's no! Slither. Uh, no! So I've done it. I've, I have separated uh, you. It's now, it's now down to Rachel and Keith. Uh, All Keith, right. Keith tends to win these things. Both of you grab a barnyard buzzer, if oh. you will. Oh, 
Okay, hold yeah. on. Uh, so I need the horse. Lou Reed said, and I want you to. I want. I want to do this. I want to do this. Do this uh, Jeopardy style uh, in the sense that I want you to buzz after I read the entire question. Okay. Is this something? Uh, is this the quote I'm making up, or uh, is it from the relic or mimic? Here we go. Are you ready? Seven decapitations in one week. Don't you just hate killers who take head and never give it? Oh. Uh, sounded sounded a little bit like Keith got it first here. Um, I want to say it's that sounds like they were coming to Tom Sizemore's mouth. So I'm going to say it's the relic. Yes, yeah. indeed. I think we already pre- established yeah. that the relic had a little bit, you know more colorful dialogue than, than Mimic did <laughs> while being a much worse film, if, if I recall, uh, which I don't actually, since I've never seen the relic, but uh, there's, because it's supposed to be terrible. Um, that's it. Rachel, that was a really good effort. Thank first you. time for someone who's not seen either of these movies. I don't, <laughs> yeah. even, I don't even know if it helps to have seen in the movies, frankly. Yeah. I feel like uh, I can tell you all about them now. <laughs> they had a lot of really all, funny all I, quotes. All I remember about the Mimic is that it has a giant cockroach monster. Well, it doesn't. I think it changes, though, right? It, it, it's like an evolutionary it thing. It evolves, from, uh, right? Cockroach it's monster. the perfect. Uh, it's the Into ult- F. Murray Abraham. As 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 someone as a fake quote says, it's the ultimate killing machine. <laughs> I, I believe Steve Soder Stephen Soderbergh worked on it, didn't he? He did. He, he was he was like credit. He was a James Fry of, of uh, the movie. <laughs> he was. All right, uh, uh, Keith, Rachel, and Nathan. Thank you. Awesome. Now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in. Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. So let's uh, start with Tasha. Oh, I looked at Genevieve and then I swiveled over. Shock. I am diabolical. I am diabolical in that respect. Tasha, you are going to set the bar and then uh, Genevieve can see if she can, uh, you know. Can clear it. Can clear it, as they say. I, I guess you go uh, if you go over it, it's a high jump. Go under it, it's limbo. Uh, bar wise. So, ready, ready to go? Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got 30 seconds on three, two, one, go. We're about to see the release of The Voices, the first English language feature from Persopolis writer and director Marjane Satrapi. That inspired me to check out a previous feature of hers, 2011's Chicken with Plums. It's a fairy tale like film based on Satrapi's graphic novel about a Persian violinist who gives up on life when things go wrong. It's a melodramatic premise, and the protagonist is toxic and hateful, but the filmmaking is impeccable. It's whimsical, colorful, halfway between Jean-Pierre Junet and Wes Anderson. The staging, camera work, editing, and effects are all surprising and funny, and it's filled with well-executed moments that puncture the self-importance. Wow. Pretty pretty well on time Tasha and and, the, and I was so slow I mean you know you're actually a, a second and a half behind but that was that was me trying to p- press stop uh, so you're wait, actually you're the, actually right at 30 is, if the bar is right at 30 does she go over it or under it she's good it depends it's gonna be limbo high halt. jump high jump it's limbo. about quality not quantity oh of seconds yeah <laughs> it's about, gonna, gonna make those seconds it's count. about it's, it's about quality man uh, that was a terrible test why can't I do one impression just one <laughs> Um, Go ahead. You have 30 seconds. We're not stopping you. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to hear my Scooby-Doo impression of yesterday. That didn't work out at all. That was very upsetting. That it was worked upsetting. out for that me. Was, that was upsetting for, for it Genevieve. It worked out for me. I get to see you do a silly impression, and I get to see Genevieve weep. Uh, all right. Uh, Genevieve, uh, you've got 30 seconds, starting in three, two, one. Go. 
All right, I've been waiting for months for Adam Wingard's The Guest to finally make it to streaming services. And now that it's finally available for digital rental via Amazon and a bunch of other platforms, I can say that you should really see this movie if you hadn't, or if you haven't, or even if you have, I just rewatched it and it's still great. It's a John Carpenter homage that's brilliantly paced and very, very funny in all the right spots, but it's also tense and gripping and full of action. It stars Dan Stevens as a mysterious character who insinuates himself into this unsuspecting family, and he plays up that ambiguity so, so well. We named it one of our best performances of 2014 for a reason. It's great. Stevens is hot. All right. Oh, wow. Well, listen, no, all that stuff about him being really hot, that that, that was past 30 seconds. Um, Doesn't make it not true. But Scott was mesmerized. You know, I was watching. I was like, that's a pretty handsome dude. Um, So uh, so here's the thing. My feeling is that my feeling is that uh, people people who listen to this podcast should should have already seen or see the guest for God's sake. It was sakes. barely Come in theaters on. and it wasn't available uh, for but, a long, long time. But people who read our site have what already this, seen this per- it. What about this theoretical oh, person one. who lives in the middle of Kansas <laughs> and there are no theaters saying, playing the right. guest? But there are podcast dispensaries <laughs> all over the place. But Chicken with Plums, who saw that? Not me. And I like Persepolis. Uh, actually, both films, uh, both films, I think are worth checking out. I think you both made an excellent argument. But Chicken with Plums wins on obscurity. Um, and uh, I'm just gonna go stare forlornly at a picture of, of Dan, Dan Stevens. Stevens. Okay. I, can I come? <laughs> yeah, definitely. He's really Scott's not invited though. <laughs> All right, uh, Tasha and Genevieve, thank you. Thank you. That does it for episode 29 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. And, uh, and of course, if you'd like to rate and review the show via iTunes, uh, that would be extremely helpful to us. Uh, if you have any questions or thoughts, email us at feedback at the Dissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And remember... No smoking pot on the potty. <laughs>